The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. Welcome back to the new season, or whatever, of Serious Fun. We've got a lot of cool stuff planned for this year and next, and we start off with a special episode as part of our countdown to the Brown County Library Comic Con. About 56 years ago, give or take, it's tough to tell with these things, Marvel Comics published issue number 15 of Amazing Fantasy, a science fiction anthology series written by Stan Lee with art by Steve Ditko. Think the Twilight Zone, basically. Sales weren't great, and with the last issue approaching, they decided to take a chance. Uh, Martin Goodman, the publisher at Marvel at the time, said, Go ahead, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. We do your weird new superhero you want to write about. So they came up with this character, this weird outsider teenager who struggled with money and popularity in school, who had an elderly aunt who uh, took care of him, and also the proportionate strength of a radioactive spider that had bitten him. That's right, seven months later, that character got his own book, and The Amazing Spider-Man became a cultural institution for generations of comic fans, appearing in countless comic books, a newspaper strip, educational television shows, several cartoons, eight feature films, and counting. There have been at least four different Spider-Man actors, uh, well, three, but, you know, who knows? I feel like I'm missing one somewhere. Video games, including the big-budget Sony production, debuting right around when you hear this, a plethora of merchandise, and yes, even an ill-fated Broadway musical. An expensive stage musical built around a guy who swings from place to place on a tiny thread at great heights? Don't know what could have gone wrong there! He's also partnered with the United Nations to promote peacekeeping efforts, appeared in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and a lot of other things I'm probably forgetting. In short, he's arguably one of the most popular superheroes of all time, and cooler than Batman, I'm just gonna say it. And if we're being honest, he's my personal sentimental favorite. I've loved him since I was a kid. I watched the 90s Fox cartoons, I played at the action figures, I read whatever comics I could find. One of the first superhero comics I ever read was an amazing Spider-Man annual. I even did a speech on the guy in college forensics. Didn't really set the world on fire, but whatever. I had fun and I got to talk about Spider-Man. So, you know, I really won the day. He's one of the most relatable and lovable characters in comics, and yet, when you think about it, also one of the strangest and, in some cases, most off-putting concepts. So with an avalanche of Spider material dropping this year, including the PlayStation 4 video game, a film based on Spider-Man's evil alien doppelganger Venom, that doesn't have Spider-Man in it at all, the Spider-Geddon comics event, the Into the Spider-Verse animated feature film, which looks great, and some other things I'm probably missing, it seems like as good a time as any to sit down and talk with University of Colorado Boulder media professor J. Richard Stevens, the author of the highly recommended book, Captain America, Masculinity and Violence, The Evolution of a National Icon, as well as a great deal of other writings on other Marvel characters about why Spider-Man matters nearly six decades after his debut. We could have talked for three or four or five or six or seven hours, but out of common decency and respect for your time, we tried to keep it to about one. So enjoy J. Richard Stevens talking Spider-Man on Serious Fun.
And here we are on Serious Fun. Uh, again, we're talking about Spider-Man, and with me is Jay Richard Stevens, uh, media professor at UC Boulder. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Um, so give us a kind of quick background, like uh, what brings you to the topic? What What's some of your interests? What are some of the things you study? Uh, that sort of thing. Well, sure. Um, I'm a media scholar, and I'm really interested in popular culture and the way that um, large groups of people make kind of, for lack of a better word, our mythology, our, our understanding of how technology works, how society is supposed to work, where that kind of the civic stories that we tell that um, identify us socially. And comic books, movies, television, these are the things that, that media scholars study. And, and so I gravitate towards um, these particular spaces because there's so much power and energy um, coming into comic book texts and of course their adaptation into other media forms. Right. I, I love that idea of, of the sort of civic story or the, the kind of media myth. I think that's a really good way to talk about uh, these topics and really kind of illustrate why they're important because of this sort of like kind of agreed upon sort of collective tapestry of different uh, artifacts and that kind of thing that makes our sort of media discourse. So yeah, well, that's that's one of the focuses here in our program is civic engagement. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in some programs that means getting people together and finding out how they talk about social mm -hmm. problems. And, and we do some of that too, but um, I'm really interested in how you know, these media artifacts inform us how, you know, watching action movies and informs our ideas about foreign policy, th those kinds of things. And of course, comic books are rich with that kind of ideological training. Yeah. So you're a Marvel guy. I think that's fair to say. Um, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Uh, respect for DC, but, you know, I, I assume like me, you're primarily Marvel. Um, and, and you've already you've written some really excellent books on the subject. Of course, uh, we, we talked a bit about uh, Captain America, uh, the, the Captain America book, which is uh, Captain America, uh, Masculinity and Violence, uh, the Evolution of a National Icon. I had to look over at my shelf. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and you've, you've done some work on Captain Marvel as well. Uh, so I figured it'd be a great idea to have you come in and talk about neither of those characters and talk instead about Spider-Man, <laughs> who's kind of right up there with those characters. Right. Um, so maybe like you, I actually read both Marvel and DC comics when I was a right. kid, but Marvel had my attention, um, especially as a as a young man, just more relatable characters and, and things like that. So um, Spider-Man is very near and dear, especially to my childhood heart, um, mm -hmm. also is very big in my son's world. So uh, we have a lot of connections with him, even though I tend to um, gravitate towards what's coming out now, which, you know, mm -hmm. now is Spider-Man, but. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting because like you mentioned that uh, Spider-Man is really important in your son's life. I feel that like Spider-Man is one of those characters that especially resonates with you when you're a young kid, right? Because mm -hmm. um, I think about my own experience with Spider-Man, I mentioned, I alluded to this earlier, like when I was probably like third or fourth grade, I got, I, I got bit by the Spider-Man bug. Um, <laughs> for lack of a better metaphor. Um, and, you know, that was like, there's just something about him that was like bright and cool and colorful. And like, he was, you know, just see the cartoons and the action figures and all that stuff. And, um, and, you know, like Batman's kind of the contemporary in a lot of ways. I feel like you're almost either a Batman kid or a, or a Spider-Man kid in some ways. And like, um, yeah. that, and, and never really, like whichever one you see first is kind of your favorite. 
Yeah, it can be that. Um, I that's a joke I have with some friends of mine about Batman, um, which mm-hmm. is at what point do you outgrow Batman, um, and why do some people never seem to? But um, yeah. but I mean, Spider Man has I think some things for adults, but you're right in that he's really particularly well positioned for younger people um, mm-hmm. to gravitate toward teens and and so forth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my oh, go ahead. I said, certainly as I got older, like I still held on to that because as I kind of like identified with him more as I got older too. Yeah. Well, we, we went through things together and you know, that was, that's, that's part of it as well. Um, especially people of our generation who were there for some significant changes, um, that we got to go through as well. So. Well, let's talk about some of those changes because we've had multiple versions of Spider-Man across many different media. In fact, this was the point of the uh, Spider-Verse uh, series yeah. is that they basically said, okay, every version of Spider-Man that ever existed exists and they can all interact with each other. Um, right. So do you have a particular favorite interpretation or iteration of the character that you come back to? Yeah, so there's several um, actually. And so this is one of the interesting things about um, Spider-Man and the era in which I first encountered him. Um, I was three or four years old um, when I first um, encountered Spider-Man. And my oldest verifiable memory um, would have been when I was in preschool. Um, the school that I went to, there was a particular Mego Spider-Man, the you know mm-hmm. um, eight-inch dolls um, that had cloth clothing. Um, and I remember that I played with that every day, so much so that when preschool ended that year, the teacher wanted me to take it home like that became Uh my kind of my branded toy but Mm -hmm. i'm not sure that was the first spider-man i had t-shirts there were comics there were cartoons Mm -hmm. this is in that era where marvel had started um you know kind of hyper branding everything stickers folders so there's this kind of semiotic spider-man space um Mm -hmm. that i was in and the funny thing is the comics actually weren't a part of that um, as much at that point. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of my favorite versions, though, I mean, it's actually a few and they're very different and they they kind of interact from different eras. I had this weird love of Spider-Man and his amazing friends, that um, cartoon show that um, Stan Lee had gone out to California to make. Um, and... So there are there are actually comics of that, and anytime I can find a Firestar or that particular version of Iceman, I, I'm weirdly having I'm attracted to it. I have to buy that or or go after that. Um, in terms of the ones I think about, though, in in comics, um, the the black suited symbiote Spider Man, that first big transition away from the the classic red and blue costumes. So that would have been um, Amazing Spider-Man 252 through 258, um, Secret Wars, kind of beginning of web as Spider-Man. Those those 80s books, um, those happened at a very particular time in my readership. And so there's, there's kind of a seminal grab to it. it this actually is a question that interests me because I, I have this um, idea, which it sounds like you do too, which is usually the first version of something we encounter mm-hmm. kind of imprints what's normal for that text. And um, with Superman, I know exactly what that means. There's a right. particular Superman that I gravitate t- towards, but with Spider-Man, it's either that black suited one from the secret wars line or the amazing friends or those earlier memories or, weirdly the ultimate spider-man um i 
very much enjoyed that that project. And of course, that was 2000. I, w- I was an adult when that was mm-hmm. that was occurring. But that recaptured enough and blended together enough of those memories that um, I just had kind of some really intense um, like of it. And then, of course, I'm also drawn to Miles Morales, both for what he represents and, and the fact that my son really likes that version of the character. So that's that's a really unanswerable way of answering your question. Sure. Um, but it's probably that black that first black symbiote Spider-Man, that eight issue series where he had he was trying to figure out his new powers and costume uh, mm-hmm. just because of how that epitomized his struggle. Right. And yeah, like that is, and it's funny, they got a lot of mileage out of that dramatically, even though I think one of the main reasons behind it is that they just got, the artist just got tired of drawing the webbing on his suit. So they're just like, okay, he's just a solid black costume now. <laughs> like it's There, there um, was also rumored, and, and I've been looking for the, the sourcing on this, if I decide to, to write a book, I'll dig deeper into it. But they were having some rights disputes um, over oh. Spider-Man. That That's when... Um, the Jack Kirby estate was starting to say, hey, I created Spider-Man. And there was a moment where they said, well, you know what? We don't have to do Spider-Man the same way. And mm-hmm. um, at least for a small window, that might have been one of the reasons not to keep that out of circulation, but kind of to prove that they could. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one piece that's interesting. There's always these backstories. And like I said, that's what I've heard a few times and, and, and I want to get to. But also, yes, there are definitely people who hate drawing that webbing, um, especially mm-hmm. the way it was originally drawn. Yeah. when I, I remember when I was a kid trying to draw Spider-Man. That's the part that always tripped me up. I could never get it right. Um, yeah, kind of out, but then I was never that good at drawing him anyway, so I didn't really. Um, <laughs> like I should have picked an easier character. Like I could draw like a, a really cheap knockoff of the animated series Batman, so I just draw that a lot. But um, right. <laughs> Spider Man's way harder. He is, um, but it's such an iconic costume too. And um, one of the things I find interesting about that, and like you know, because because the other thing too is like with you, know, you mentioned like the the first version of the character. Uh, we've been coming back to that, like that being kind of the definitive one, but he's been in so many different media that there is no one definitive version of anymore. And even within certain media, you could say, well, this was my Spider-Man. I don't get this new, yeah. one, right? Like, you know, I have a very deep attachment to the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi Spider-Man. He is, I know, yeah. objectively, it is, it is not yeah. the best interpretation of Spider-Man, but it was the one that like, I it hit at exactly the right moment for me. I was in high school. I was, you know, like I was one of the first DVDs I bought with my, uh, my kind of like winter job and all that. Um, so like I have a very, and you know, my wife and I, like we bonded over it. We went to go see the second one together. We had a Spider-Man anniversary that year, um, you know, back when we were still dating. Uh, so I have a very strong attachment to that, even though I acknowledge that like in some ways the, the Tom Holland one might be a better interpretation. Um, oh yeah. I, never, I can't quit Toby. I can't. Like it's, well, it's, and that's that's what's interesting because um, that movie was groundbreaking. I mean, it absolutely was. Just that um, after Blade, it was a like it really was. Like, yeah, we're going to actually do the costumes and, and, and all of, all of that. Um, but what's interesting though is the Tom Holland one actually resonates more with me because I just have this, you know, the John Romita look, mm-hmm. um, which is again funny that I never read those comics as a kid. But that was the branded version. They went everywhere. And so that's the version that was on my T-shirt. And that's the version that was in wallpaper. And that's the version that was on folders. And so mm-hmm. when they managed to kind of capture that with the Tom Holland um, portrayals, that to me improved a little bit over those, even though I can acknowledge, you know, 
the second Tobey Maguire Spider-Man might be the best movie superhero movie. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I think that. it's still up there. Like <laughs> even with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all the strides they've made, I still come back to that second one. Um, I, I, I again, I alluded to this to the intro, but I actually did a, a speech on that movie in college forensics. Um, almost purely out of self-indulgence. I'm like, I need to do something to get a scholarship. So um, it did not do well, but I felt good about it. And one of my coaches was also a big Spider-Man fan. So he's just like, go for it. Um, uh, so I have a very strong attachment to that movie. I think just it really, that between that and Homecoming, I think those two just do a really good job triangulating. I think what is so appealing about Spider-Man as a character from different sort of perspectives, one much more dramatic one much more kind of lighthearted. Um, they just really, those two movies together, kind of like the platonic ideal of Spider-Man, I think. Well, sure. And and of course that second Tobey Maguire film is kind of the purest version of what we think of as kind of the superhero trope. Um, yeah. That struggle to find your, your civic uh, mission. Mission is a big part of superheroism um, against um, the consequences, the, the the sacrifices that have to be made, and in a very different way, you're right. The the Tom Holland um, Homecoming film, it has that same kind of flavor, which harkens back to that early earliest kind of Ditko era. Um, but at the same time, um, kind of just brings it into a new age where, right. where you know we're we're just seeing it in a different way. Yeah, and and I think what's interesting about that is it acknowledges that okay the way that Ditko originally conceptualized Spider-Man as kind of the nerdy outcast, he wouldn't really yep. be that anymore, especially with the magnet schools, that sort of stuff that crop up with, which encourage kids to get really into science and technology. And, you know, STEM is not quite the domain of uh, the nerd as it used to be. So like, I really liked how they updated it, but still kind of made him kind of a pathetic loser anyway. Um, like it's, yeah. it's, it still works within that framework. Um, oh, oh yeah, and and I mean yeah. that original that original version that um, that Ditko was going at, I, I think was probably closer to his experiences. Mm -hmm. Although, um, of all of the creators, Ditko's the one we're always going to know the least about um, because he was the the one who famously avoided interviews and, and press and all of that. But given the kinds of themes we see in the work, and then some of the ways that he, you know, kind of um, composed himself, um, you can. You, I think you can kind of see some self-reflection of that. That idea mm -hmm. that nerdy, smart people are cursed um, right. because the, the uh, social graces and the, the the social capital that that you need to get through high school just isn't as interesting or compelling or even accessible to people who mm -hmm. are thinking about these bigger things. Well, you can also see, I think, in some of the, the earlier work, and not only that that sort of social isolation, but also um, the beginnings of what would become much more obvious in his later work, which is that strain of objectivism that he really, oh, um, yeah. he's deeply, as far as I know, he's a very deeply, uh, um, he, he really believed in objectivism. That was like a major kind of guiding philosophy in, oh, his, yeah. life, in his art, if you, especially if you get to like The Question and Mr. A and some of his later work. Um, but Spider-Man has a bit of that and kind of being like the one sort of th guy that is like exceptional, but kind of misunderstood and nobody really like acknowledges his greatness. Um, and that, but he's still the one that kind of like saves the day. Like there, there's elements in that. And I, and I think that this kind of also opens the door to like, one of my least favorite arguments is superheroes are inherently fascist or objectivist. Cause I don't think that's true. Um, I think that's a really reductive way of looking at it, but with Ditko, you can kind of see elements of that in his work anyway. Um, even though, and, and those, and that sort of permeates into the character, even though 
I would argue there's nothing inherently objectivist about Spider-Man other than the fact the guy who created him was. Um, it's it's a really I, I just find I find that fascinating, but also kind of frustrating when people like just get really reductivist to them. Well, sure, and and the great thing about comics of the '60s um, in that era, um, you know, is that each one of them had a different take or different personality. There wasn't this um, drive to make one character carry water um, for a whole genre or for a whole archetype. And I mean, I think that's the Marvel difference. And that's, that's what separated uh, Marvel from DC at the time. But that's also what I found more compelling even into the eighties mm -hmm. was the, the greater degree of personality. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, Steve Ditko had this, fascination with Ayn Rand and, and all mm -hmm. of that, um, those narratives. And so you can see some parallels. Um, you can you can pick out her protagonists and put them alongside Peter Parker and the social reactions to him are very similar. And, and he seemed mm -hmm. to um, replicate and of course um, play out some of those same, same ideas. Yeah, but certainly much more altruistic than Rand's uh, characters would have been. Well, sure. <laughs> like, you know, the, the superhero by definition has to be altruistic on some level or they don't really work, I don't think. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's, uh, I mean, we could talk for probably an entire episode or three about that alone. But um, yeah. you notice that there is eventually kind of a change because, you know, you go back to the original Ditko comics. He is that outsider. He's very much kind of like, you know, there's like, I, I think you described it as like sort of this cross between superheroes but also like archie comics but also like yeah. body horror when we were talking about this and i think yeah. there's really that kind of like it's, it's there's an element of horror to this comic and an element of like oh, yeah. real genuine pathos that doesn't necessarily follow the character for the rest of his existence um and i'm just yeah like, well and i mean ditko was you know of course fascinated with horror i mean he worked in that genre off and mm -hmm. on in between some of these other stints um that, that we were talking about um but even in the earliest versions of spider-man like when you look at spider-man and amazing fantasy 15 mm -hmm. um the costume is it's designed to be creepy i mean that's mm -hmm. you know hide every feature of him and of course the giant eyes, the narrative, uh, yeah oh yeah and the webbing under the arms and all the things that aren't exactly practical but you know within the text it's he's a teenager and so he's mm -hmm. trying to you know obscure that but um you know he doesn't want people to know how young he is but just the whole drawing of it. What if there was a superhero who was creepy? And so kind of embedded in that, in the in the superhero form, you've got this nerdy kid who doesn't seem to understand, you know, <laughs> that this isn't gonna work out so well for him. Creating this costume that is off-putting, um, right. you know, whereas a superhero costume, generally we think of as inspires awe or, you know, it, it's impressive. Here's one that everybody's kind of, wait, that's a, spider and mm -hmm. it's moving and there's webbing all over him and it, it's it is it's a very strange idea but at the same mm -hmm. time it kind of captures some magic it keeps him an outsider but it's yeah. it's it's almost like he's just unaware um of how his choices isolate him and and yep. put off others and keep him from being able to interact and so it's like his you can see his best intentions keep winding up in tragedy because he's just so disconnected and socially inept. Yep. And, and, and I think like you see elements of that in that first uh, Raimi movie, um, you know, the horror, especially because like the, the organic web shooters and like, just like the, they, they, they take the, like, they're like pulsing under his skin and like little hairs come out of his fingers. Like it's like almost Cronenbergian at points. Um, yeah. 
and, and I think that like there is like in a lot of ways that was really true to that original interpretation, but there's like a distinct change, I think. Uh, and, and maybe you can help me uh, like sort of identify yeah. exactly when this happens. When Spider-Man became, Spider becomes a lot more cuddly, he becomes the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Um, he makes more jokes. He's less uh, apt to be, you know, mopey or be as much of an outsider. He becomes kind of like the kid brother to the Avengers and that kind of stuff. Um, wh where do you think like that line is drawn? Like, is there a specific like uh, run or a specific artist or a specific kind of media well, interpretation that kind of changes that? I mean, of course, Ditko left that book um, kind of under duress. Um, he, mm -hmm. uh, he, you know, famously was he and he and Stan Lee didn't agree on the direction of the book. Um, and it kind of got the sense that um, Ditka was waiting for Spider-Man to die um, in, in a sense of this is what, like he had this obsession with what's going to be real. And in his world, um, in his, his version of, of this character anyway, there's not a happy ending. There's not comfort because this whole thing is, is kind of a curse. This is, mm -hmm. um, he's trying to do good, but it always turns out bad for him. Um, and that, you know, further isolation, further tragedy. Um, so, you know, famously the, the, um, you know, story goes that the big disagreement turned out to be around the identity of the green goblin that, mm -hmm. um, Stan Lee thought it should be Norman Osborn. And, um, Ditko said that, that that's not realistic, that that would happen in a soap opera, but that wouldn't happen in real life. We shouldn't do it. And that somewhere along the way there were creative differences but I also think that was a, a personality difference. Um, one of the great mm -hmm. quotes from later um, in life, uh, Steve Ditko once said, um, if, all, if all the web lines I've drawn were laid end to end, they still wouldn't be enough to fit around Stanley's swollen head. And <laughs> when you think about their personalities, um, Stanley, a constant promoter, he's constantly mm -hmm. selling, he's constantly drawing attention to the brand and to himself. And Steve Ditko just wanted to hide in the corner and write literature. I mean, mm -hmm. he just, he wanted to create um, art. And so you can kind of see like the function of comic books comes at odds right there because mm -hmm. um, Ditko wants to tell a story that makes sense and is going to tell certain morality tales. Stan Lee wants to keep building the brand and mm -hmm. to do things to draw in more readers. Um, so at some part they, they part ways and then, I think you just start to see this kind of um, influx, you know, Jerry Conway comes into the picture. You start to see, um, you know, people like John Romita who kind of puts a, a new visual stamp on it. And I think there's this um, smoothing out of Spider-Man's costume, his aesthetic. Um, now he's showing up on lunchboxes and, and, mm -hmm. and he's more of a brand, but then also the story shifts. Um, and it, he goes from the extreme outcast to, Peter Parker not only can go on dates. Now his problem is he's attracted to many women who are attracted to him and he's having, right. you know, now it's right. really getting into the other end of the Archie sphere, which is, yeah. you know, the hijinks of um, trying to figure out who Peter Parker is going to wind up with and, and mm -hmm. how that is that, that was not a real Ditko feel um, no. from the early book. No. And so I think that's, that's the stamp of these, of that second wave of, creators a different era of marvel um mm -hmm. 
you know, when you think about the original Fantastic Four and, you know, it's Lee and Kirby and you think about, you know, Captain America and that's so much Kirby's, you know, aesthetic. That second wave is when all of a sudden it's kind of comics by committee and mm -hmm. the idea that a bullpen mm -hmm. of, um, you know, artists and writers are needed to produce more than just the original eight books they were allowed to make every month. Suddenly there's a huge expansion. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with it. And then Spider-Man, the other part of, of Spider-Man that's um, interesting was originally Lee and Ditko wanted him to grow up. In mm -hmm. other words, mm -hmm. we encounter him as a teenager and the next year of the book, he's a year older. And then the next year, so he's going to graduate from high school. He's going to go to college. He's, you know, all these things are going to happen on a real world timeline. And it's right around the 70s that starts to slip because what are we going to do? He's going to be an old man at some point. He's going to retire. You know, he's not, we're not going to get to have this, uh, what I call the tyranny of the serial. We, we, we have to keep more stories going. And so he kind of enters that null space that they do. But in the midst of that, you're absolutely right. Things become softer and, you know, the, the, the soap opera qualities become more like soap opera <laughs> than they had originally been. Yeah, and, and, I yeah that, and, and I think that in a lot of ways, that's, a lot of ways that's really essential to the character, right? Um, it's uh, absolutely you know, like I, I mean, we can talk about whether it was Ditko's intention or anything like that, but I would argue that that yeah. soap opera kind of hijinks aspect is just as much a part of the character as the sort of outsider horror kind of um, perpetual melodrama thing is too, right? Um, and, and really, I, I feel like Spider-Man as a character is about trying to find that balance between the two. And the, some of the best versions can, like, um, you know, we, we can look at different, like, for example, going back to the films, Raimi's version, very he heavy on melodrama. Tobey Maguire is not making quips or anything like that. Um, right. The more recent versions are more quip heavy and less melodramatic. Uh, it's, I don't know, I feel like, like, part of what I love about the character is he can do all of these different things. I think uh, Gail Simone did a Twitter question um, a couple weeks back asking about Spider-Man and she said something like, you know, it's weird because uh, like she has, she does this for a couple different characters. Like, what do you like about Batman? What do you like about these characters? But for Spider-Man, she's like, you know, a lot of people love Superman. They love Batman, but they, people root for Spider-Man. They really deeply care about him. And it's weird that, you know, all the things we talk about, like, you know, cause I, I respond, I said, one of the things I love about Spider-Man is he's a dude that never quits. Right. He's, you know, right. he's always there trying like, he's trying to hold the city together even when things are falling apart, even when it's destroying his life, he's got this responsibility and he never gives up. And that was like, she's like, that like that kind of stuff was never really part of the original interpretation of Spider-Man, but you could argue that it really has become that. And it's, it's so oh, yeah. integral to the character that in a lot of ways, um, and this is kind of me coming, like my kind of interpretation of that in a lot of ways, like the original Spider-Man is almost kind of, uh, you know, a perversion or not necessarily an accurate interpretation of Spider-Man anymore. Um, which is a very strange place to be in. Um, well, yeah, and, and one of the one of the key differences that you're alluding to is, you know, I root for Peter Parker, who happens mm -hmm. to be Spider-Man. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. which is kind of the opposite of the way a lot of these heroes are. Um, you know, like on the DC side of things, you know, Clark Kent is not a real person. You know, right. Superman is disguised as Clark Kent. That's that's literally the rhetoric of how that works. You know, mm -hmm. Bruce Wayne is a disguise kind of for Batman. And there's they play with that idea. Um, you know, in Marvel, 
you know, Tony Stark is Iron Man. I mean, he, the, I am Iron Man, like that, that kind of phrasing. But it, it's, you know, with Spider-Man, it's Peter Parker, it's this kid, and he's putting on this body stocking, and he's going out, and he's doing something. And, you know, whether it's film or comics, like, that's the essence. Like, he feels called to do this because of the, the tragedy that he's inflicted, in part, on, on his own life. Um, but there's that, that deep, like, core drive towards social good. He's got to help. And, it, and got to help in a compulsive way that is endearing. Because, yeah. I mean, that, that's, we, we don't meet many people like that. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the people that we meet, you know, for, you know, reasonable reasons are I work hard and then I go home. And when I get home, now I'm going to sit back on the couch and watch TV. I, I kind of get the impression Peter Parker's never actually watched TV. He doesn't have time for that because he's, right. he's got more pressing concerns. He's got to balance yeah. how am I going to get enough money to pay rent at the same time that I'm trying to save the city at the same time mm -hmm. that I'm trying not to make whoever I'm dating at the moment think that I'm a flake. Um, you know, just these constant... Um, it, it's, it's like obligations, like his guilt runs so deep that he's got these, these obligations that just, I mean, it's exhausting reading, but it's also very admirable. And, and it just kind of gives you this, this idealized, um, view of what humanity could be if we all just cared more. And of course, in his case, he can't help it. That's, that's what's endearing about it. He didn't, he didn't, in some ways he didn't choose this. It, it happened to him. Yeah, and, and I feel like some of my favorite stories personally are when they take that to like the logical extreme. Um, like they're like, you know, there are stories where the world's basically falling apart around him and he's just like running himself ragged trying to hold it together. Um, like, you know, like right. I, like I love the Maximum Carnage storyline. I just started rereading it again last night. Not because it's good necessarily, but because <laughs> it's that kind of story. Right. <laughs> You've got this family of lunatics running around, murdering, destroying, just causing all this problem. And Spider-Man's like, he's got Venom, who's really no help at all. He's got like his other friends are getting dragged into this, but it's really on him to try to do this. And, you know, you see the impact that has on the people around him. Uh, the Fear Itself Spider-Man storyline, which I did not care for Fear Itself as an event, uh -huh. but the Spider-Man story that came out of that, it was just three issues of, I think, pure, like, just distilled version of what I love about Spider-Man, is that, like, the world, like, people are, like, the city's tearing itself apart, he's the glue trying to hold it together, and you can feel as you go on, it's not necessarily fun to read, because you just feel the exhaustion coming through, like, he's, right. like, on death's door at some points, not because he's, like, severely hurt or anything, but because, like, he's been up he has been running around he's been doing everything he can and his body can't take much more of it um that to me and like you know and yeah. they, they play with this in the films like you have literal scenes of him trying to hold the city together in homecoming where he's trying to hold the ferry yeah. together and this little kid straining against for all he's worth to try to save these lives you see that in uh, spider-man 2 where he's trying to stop the train and you get like the weird little passion right. of christ kind of moment where he's being passed right, right. in the back of the car um it's it's just like moments like that like I feel like you get that out of Spider-Man and it makes sense for him in a way that I wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense for Batman to do that because Batman is not the kind of guy oh, that no. would be in that situation. Spider-Man's the kind of guy that is probably in that situation. Yeah. He may have in some way indirectly caused it, um, oh, but he's yeah. also going to do everything he can to hold it together. And, and this is one of those places where um, this is why I like um, the Tom Holland version a little bit better. It, mm -hmm. it attaches to my childhood because not only is he doing that, but I think about like that scene towards the end of Infinity War where, you know, Thanos recovers, there's this explosion. And now here's, 
Spider-Man watching all these people hurtling to their death and he's catching them one by mm -hmm. one. And he's like, I'm sorry, I don't remember your names. Like he's yeah. worried about that mm -hmm. in the middle of that. That's, that's Spider-Man. Like he yeah. doesn't have a filter for the small or the big concerns. They all hit him at the same time. And mm -hmm. it's like the weight of the world is on it. It's not just the weight of the world is on his shoulders. Cause a lot of superheroes have that. It's the little weights that all mm -hmm. add up and they all hit him at the same time. And he has a trouble, you know, deciding between them, which, that's that's Spider-Man. He's he's the yeah. guy that that you know in the in the middle of the night that the bomb the relationship bombshell drops on him, but his spider sense goes off and mm -hmm. he's laid on a deadline and the landlord is banging on the door. Like all of that mm -hmm. is happening at the same time and that's classic Spider-Man to me. Do you think that he works as well outside of that context because one of my challenges like we we've, we've seen Spider-Man uh, evolve over the years, right? Um he's got right. a job you know, he's got, he's become a teacher, which I was a big fan of him as a teacher for obvious reasons. Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, he, he, he becomes like, he owns like a multi-million dollar tech company, um, and all this stuff kind of like, and then he got married to Mary Jane. And of course they undid that because they said that stories about a married superhero aren't interesting, which don't get me started. Um, but like that, I feel like, you know, do you think that he works outside of that context of being the outsider of kind of like having all these problems of trying to run himself ragged. Do you think we can have good stories about a Spider-Man who's content or happy or has things going right for him? Well, I, th there's, there's two ways I could answer that question, but I'll, I'll start kind of with the high end and, and work my way in. Um, because the, my first answer is, well, sure, there can be those stories. But the thing about superheroes and Marvel superheroes in particular is they also function as brands. So, you know, in the one in the one sense, yes, you can tell those stories and I think you can make them interesting. But are they good Spider-Man stories? As I recognize them, I think that's hard because there's kind of this corner of the narrative universe that Spider-Man himself occupies. And so I think that's why we see this constant resetting of that status quo. Whenever he gets too comfortable or too married or too rich or too, you know, too removed from the common experience, there want that when he gets reset and kind of pushed back into that um, environment. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, this is part of the original appeal again, you know, he's young, people overlook him, he's poor, he is struggling mostly because people don't understand that's kind of the Ditko, you know, piece, but that carries forward that if only J. Jonah Jameson knew who he was talking to, he would not be so hard on him, or maybe he'd be harder, you know, or, you know, the, these that, that kind of social dynamic. So when he becomes someone closer to Reed Richards or Tony Stark, if, you know, because he does have that, that intellect, um, the stories tend to drift away, I think, from the access point of the reader. Uh, my identification with Spider-Man is kind of there, but by the grace of a radioactive spider, go I. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that that's what I aspire to be, that the personal outcomes of my choices aren't going to always be good, but I still keep doing the right thing, which is kind of the essence of him. And the more you kind of move him up the economic and social scale, I think you lose that. And and I think that's what writers find out, um, you know, when Dan Slott or whoever comes in and, and they get to a point where he builds up enough comfort, they got to find a way to take it away. And, uh, you know, there's only so many of a supporting cast you can kill doing that. So sometimes it has to be him that gets reset in some way. Let's talk about the supporting cast. You mentioned J. Jonah Jameson, who is 
Full disclosure, one of my favorite Marvel characters, maybe one of my favorite characters in comics, period. Um, but, you know, they actually did play with uh, him unveiling his secret identity to J. Jonah Jameson in the Chips Zdarsky run um, on Spider-Man. That uh, I, I'm about six months behind in everything because I read a lot of it through Unlimited. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm just getting to the point where they've, like, had the fallout of him telling J. Jonah Jameson who he is. But, like, you, when we were talking about this beforehand, you had mentioned his supporting cast is one of the main reasons why Spider-Man is so interesting. Because he does have a really interesting network of characters that are support uh, characters, but also characters that are antagonists, but not necessarily villains. Um, right. And, you know, and of course, there's the rogues gallery, if we can talk about uh, in, a, in a minute. But what, what do you find so interesting about that sort of supporting cast? Uh, that, that, and what do you think that adds to the character? Well, I mean... You know, if you think about him again in that kind of Archie model um, in high school, and he has all these high school relationships that he's also juggling against his professional relationships at the Daily Bugle, and you kind of see how he gets torn between worlds. And he's on campus, and you know, Flash Thompson is is the athletic bully, but you know, Harry Osborn's his best friend, but man, he's got problems. And um, you know, you get into him, and 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 see, you know, the the drug use or whether it's he's dealing with schizophrenia or just the pressure of having a supervillain father who's overbearing and just all of those things happening, you kind of see a few things, you know, Peter Parker's trying to have this normal social life, but he's also trying to save everybody that he comes across, even the people that are treating him poorly. And mm-hmm. there, there's just something really interesting about that but then the characters themselves take on this life i mean um what was i think different than you know i I read a little bit of archie when i was little but it never really stuck with me and to me part of that was that the characters were a little bit too template and and formish whereas when i'm reading some of the same kind of tropes played out through peter parker's life I mean, there's there's no mistaking that, that Gwen Stacy, you know, and Mary Jane Watson are two completely different people. I mean, there's there's nothing, you know, there's no way you could mistake one for the other. And then you think about Betty Brant, and you think about, you know, later Felicia Hardy, and you know, the, just the love interest triangles, and how each one of them is attracted to a different part of Peter Parker, which is interesting because it's like those relationships help us understand more about who he really is. Um, even as we're trying to figure out who these, these other, other characters are, but I just, that kind of dense relationship storytelling, um, even within Marvel was a lot tighter than what was happening on the Avengers, which seemed a little bit more superficial, um, Mm -hmm. than that. And, and then of course, just the consequences, um, in their lives. Like I, I can remember, um, you know, Joe Robertson, Robbie Robertson, who was, one of the first, you know, main African American characters in comics, but then he has arcs where he's struggling against threats from a supervillain and the criminal underworld. Like every character has these real consequences. J. Jonah Jameson has a son that he's fiercely proud of, who's an astronaut, but then turns into a man wolf, and mm-hmm. you know, just as, all as you do as as it happens. You know, of course, and yeah. you know, and that's that. You know, that that's what makes it a comic book. But it's like you get a sense of, I want to put J. Jonah Jameson into this corner or, or into this category as he's an awful, thoughtless person. But then you see his own humanity. Like you get to every one of these characters' 
motivations and they seem very human. And all of that kind of feeds, of course, into Peter Parker himself. And I, I just think, you know, beyond the fact that supporting cast and rogues galleries add to the narrative, it, you know, it just, it, it created a lot of just depth um, of, of character where, you know, fans were writing letters rooting for one of the girlfriends at different times, you know, and yeah, just were, the were you team and or team MJ, that kind of stuff. Exactly. And, you know, and, and oddly, I kind of grew up more Gwen Stacy, um, which is funny because, I mean, she died fairly early in my childhood. Um, and so I didn't experience the trauma that a lot of people did, but I saw them react to it. I saw some people react to it. And that alone, I mean, that tells you you've got something special. When people are emotionally distraught, that a what would be a secondary character in another book dies suddenly. Um, and then of course, Peter carries that trauma on. Um, and, and that's the other part of it is that all of these experiences, um, his relationship with Aunt May, the trauma over losing Uncle Ben, that's always present. Like even when people are no longer in the story, the, the, the weight, the, the impact of them is, is still kind of embedded in him. And of course he winds up you know, he, he's kind of the, the best representative of humanity. So there it's, it's just a, it's just a good, interesting um, character driven story that, Oh yeah, the superheroes, it's kind of like how the, the walking dead is not really about the zombies. Um, mm -hmm. In some cases, the super villains really aren't the point of the story. They're just the thing that tears him away from his relationships. Right. They're, they're the things that right. he's got to tell Mary Jane right now. She's about to get on a plane. He, he has to tell her that he wants her to, to, to marry him, but his spider sense goes off. And that's, mm -hmm. that's like Peter Parker mm -hmm. in a nutshell is that tragedy of bad timing that we all experience, but he just experiences a lot more of it. The Parker luck as they call it. The Parker luck as they call it. Exactly. Everything turns to crap in his hands, um, mm -hmm. even with the best intentions. Yeah, so I want to talk about, yeah, so I want to talk about, about the villains a little bit because I think that they are an important part of that tapestry. Um, because like it, it, what they've done really well, I think, with the characters or with the villains is they've made a lot of them, even though they are primarily, as you said, obstacles that kind of get in the way of Peter Parker's life. Um, I feel that like one one thing I get out of a lot of the Spider-Man villains, I don't with a lot of other villains, is a sense of deep humanity and tragedy. Um, and I would go so far as to say I think that, and, and this mm -hmm. is going to be controversial. Um, I think that Spider-Man's villains are better than Batman's. I, and I fully 100% oh. believe that um, just because I, I feel like I understand, like I get like the pathos of say uh, Dr. Octopus or the green goblin or something like that more than I do the Joker. Right. Like there's something yeah. inherently like, yeah, and, and I think a lot of this comes back to this, something that's kind of an, a trope you see a lot in the Marvel comics is that a lot of their heroes and villains are the subject of, are, are, are essentially that way because of misfortune, right? Dr. Octopus right. goes through an experiment, it goes wrong, and it fuses these metal arms to his body and messes with his mind, right? Um, yeah. You've got, uh, you know, Mysterio is like just like a, a small time, like special effects magician kind of guy, but he can't, he can't cut a break. He can't catch a break. So he kind of goes to crime. Um, you've got all these things where it's like, you know, with a little bit of luck or going the kind of the wrong way, uh, these people could be perfectly normal, could even be heroes, but for a twist of fate, right? 
And I yeah. find something deeply relatable about that. And I think, you know, what I, what I love about it is that Spider-Man himself even has empathy for a lot of these villains, right? Um, oh, yeah. So what, what's, oh, what sorry, separates, oh, that's okay. Um, what separates him from a lot of the villains is kind of, I think of it as they've lost a little bit more faith than he has. Like he, mm -hmm. Spider-Man has that's this unending faith in humanity, mm -hmm. even as it's crapping on him. And that's, that's what makes him him. And, it, and it's, you know, um, that, that, that pathology, but at the same time, like you think about what separates him from the vulture, what separates him from Dr. Octopus. And it's not just that misfortune has happened to them, though that is always the key element. Um, but it's also whatever misfortune is, they blame some part of the system which is what kind of becomes their, their core. They've been wronged, but mm -hmm. they've been wronged in such a way that they need revenge or they need to try to fix something. Like I, I think of the, of course, the, the epitome of a uh, Marvel villain is Dr. Doom. And, you know, I always think of him uh, as like, I used to, in, in my head, people would say, well, Dr. Doom is just their version of, of Darth Vader. And I think, no, because back then Darth Vader was, you know, a lot simpler. He also um, came first for the record, but yeah. But um, but Dr. Doom, I get him. Like, he just wants the world to make more sense. And he has a lot of ability and he has a lot of knowledge. Most people don't agree with him because most people don't understand him. So he's pushing on that. But I see elements of that. That's also Norman Osborn. That's mm -hmm. also Dr. Octopus. That's all, they're, they're all in their own ways just kind of removed, you know, a half step from the success they want. Even even characters like Craven the Hunter, he's just trying to make it in showbiz. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> he's he's just looking for that next publicity stunt, or he's trying to, you know, get back at um, later, you know, the the humil the humiliation that he's received. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, all of these characters, and then I think that's what that why they endure um, for so long, um, you know, which. Is a superhero thing, but uh, but at the same time, they're compelling because we kind of get to, okay, this person now is tragically stuck in this terrible situation, and they're just frustrated. Like, I mean, that's that's mm -hmm. kind of what what is at the root of all of it, and that's what separates them from Spider Man. Like, he's he's under a lot of the same pressure. A lot of the same things have happened to him. But his frustration is only that he can't do enough, not that other people are failing him. And that's, that's, that's the core difference. Um, but yeah, what that amounts to is a fantastic rogues gallery. Um, and then I just also thought I'd throw in one, one of the things that I also love, and they played with this in the, the ultimate comics, which is one of the reasons I love them so much is that unlike the kind of formulaic um, comics um, from the 50s, 60s and 70s and in most genres, but also mainly a DC mainstream. It's like every um, Superman's going to face, whether it's Lex Luthor or Bizarro, the point is he's facing a threat that is close to his maximum and we're going to see this exertion. There were some stories that were just great about the Shocker is no match for Spider-Man. And I that's love kind the of the, so much. I know. And it's like, that's <laughs> part of the joke though, that here's this guy and he's, he's better, he's stronger, has more ability than the average person, so he's doing something, and then, oh, man, Spider-Man shows up, and he's way more powerful, and so that's mm -hmm. just not even fair, and, but that's part, that'd be more real. Mm -hmm. 
I, I love the implied sort of cast system for the Spider-Man rogues. Like um, when they did the, uh, um, I, you know, I, I kind of go back and forth as to whether or not I'm like a, a fan of uh, of uh, the guy's work in general. But I really did love the Superior Foes of Spider-Man series, mostly because the joke is right there in the title. These guys are not the Superior Foes. Right. They're just like Z-listers who are kind of terrible at this. And they're always constantly fighting with each other. And Shocker always takes the butt of all of it. Um, yep. But like, you know, they're not on the level of Doc Ock or Goblin or any of these other guys, but they're there. And, you know, Spider-Man still takes them seriously, but he's also like, guys, come on. Um, but like it's and he like, I love what I, uh, you know, and, and they get to this in a lot, I think, in the best Spider-Man stories is that. And I think you put it perfectly that he's got more faith than they do in humanity. And you saw this in, um, I, I think, to an extent in the Spider-Man 2 film, but especially in Homecoming, where he will just not let Vulture die because he cannot right. let that happen. Like Vulture has tried to kill him multiple times at this point, but he still goes out of his way to try to save his life. And he does. And that to me is yet just a perfect sort of Spider-Man moment um, that he won't like, you know, if he's going to help you, he will, regardless of whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, he just wants you to be better. And I really love that. Yeah. But on the other hand, he's also going to stop you know, yeah. things that he disagrees mm -hmm. with, even at great cost to himself. And yeah, mm -hmm. and then within that, there's all these other, um, you know, foibles, you know, that, that come up with it. One of, one of the um, comics that I love and just recently came across, and um, it's a Peter David written comic. It was a Peter Parker around issue, I want to say 116, somewhere somewhere mm -hmm. in that, that range. Um, but it, it kind of captures the difference between Spider-Man and other heroes. So what he's trying to do, he's um, trying to, um, he's fighting Sabretooth and he decides I've got to get some photos. And that's always, that's, that's that extra element. I need these <laughs> photos of this fight. So what he does is he positions his camera and he keeps trying to lead Sabretooth back into range of the camera. Um, and, but he's also in his head having all of these thoughts about, you know, his life and what's going on. And in the midst of that, he loses his attention long enough that Sabretooth slashes him across the middle, um, mm -hmm. which on the one hand, you know, of course, Sabretooth is fairly powerful, um, but this is one of those fights where Spider-Man clearly, you know, mm -hmm. has the upper hand in his fight the whole way until that moment. It's almost like that moment of, oh yeah, you know, I could be slashed. But what his reaction was, he started yelling because mm -hmm. that was his last clean costume. <laughs> and now it was, and he started yelling, I hate sewing. Like, I, you know, you've done that. And then all of a sudden the fight becomes a lot more intense because in his mind, like, I don't have time to go sew a costume and they're all dirty. And he can't believe the super villain has slashed his costume. And <laughs> it's that kind of like deep, that, that focus on minutia that um, that's, that's it. Like he's, he's juggling so many things you know, by a thread that when that thread starts to unravel, that's when you see his frustration emerge, but it's in those very personal ways. And, and it doesn't ever get directed at society. I mean, it really should be sometimes. Um, yeah. There are moments where he really should walk away and use his powers for himself. But of course, every time they have that storyline, that's that's that, um, you know, Tobey Maguire set number two um, off of Spider-Man 50 kind of um, story where, um, no, we will not, you know, I can't let that go. The, the pathology will never release him. He has to always come back to it. 
that kind of puts that mission back into like a virtuous place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think like a lot of times he ends up blaming himself more than anybody. Oh yeah, of course. Like coming back to Maximum Carnage, one of the panels that always stuck with me when I was a kid, because you know, like I, I came to that story mostly because of the Genesis game. Um, like like yeah. the one where you walk around beating up bad guys and all that. Right. Um, and they have like little panels and all that. And so I, I, and going back and reading the comics, I'm like, oh yeah, there's this part from the game. There's this part from the game, but. Um, one of the things is they actually do have Firestar in there, and they realize, okay, fire hurts the symbiote. We've got and Venom and Spider-Man gets uh, Firestar down there and just say, unload on him, give him everything you've got. And but you start to hear like the you know the the man that uh, Cletus Cassie, the man that the symbiote's attached to, screaming like he's actually like in dire pain, he's dying. And like you can see, like even though like you don't have a expression on his face, like the way they draw his mask, you can see that this is the slow re- realization is like we're going too far. He's going to die, and it's going to be my right. fault. And I'm basically dragging Firestar into murdering this guy. And Venom, of course, like, yeah, yeah, do it, do it. Um, so you have, like, literal angel and devil on her shoulder. And the way they structure the panels right. are like that, too. And they eventually says, just stop. For the love of God, stop. And then that, like, causes Carnage to get away. And then Venom beats the holy hell out of him because he's, like, you let him get away. And, like, but, you know, and they could have solved the problem right in and there. But just he can't let himself do that. And he beats himself up because, like, I've forced somebody else to do this to make this choice that I would never make myself. Um, and it costs him like it does cost him like it, the, the situation is prolonged as a result. And I find that really interesting that he's his own worst enemy in a lot of ways, but it also his own harshest critic. He holds himself to the standard oh, yeah. um, that, you know, is maybe even impossible to reach. Um, oh, well, again, and of course, I, I think the, the ultimate example of that goes all the way back to that Gwen Stacy moment. You know, mm-hmm. he's fighting the Green Goblin. The Green Goblin puts Gwen Stacy in danger by knocking her off the bridge. Spider-Man catches that moment and catches her with the web yes i've saved her but the way his web hit her snaps her neck and then of course that becomes the source of his ultimate guilt i killed gwen stacy because of me she died and i'm thinking uh the green goblin physically knocked her off the bridge right but that's not even in his head like like the super villains they're supposed to do that i'm supposed to save people and if i don't it doesn't matter if, you know, nine other people had a hand in it. My failure is the one that matters to me. Like it, his, his kind of sense of, of obligation and guilt runs so deep that mm-hmm. everything becomes his fault. Like everything, yep. you know, which is, which is what makes him endearing, but also tragic. Um, yeah. It's he, he, yeah, frustrating, honestly, as a yeah. character, just like get out of your own head, man. Like, but that's, but I think that adds to the depth and adds to the complexity. Like as a reader, sometimes you get mad at him because it's like, you know, this wasn't your fault or you need to like move on, but you also get it because if it happened to you, you probably wouldn't be able to move on. You probably would blame yourself. And that's what makes him so he doesn't bounce back from stuff that happens to him the way a lot of heroes do. He like, he stews in it. It sits with him forever and he can, and and I don't, I just, I I think out of all the heroes, like he is by far the most relatable. Um, in that regard. Well, he is. And then also admirable because, you know, his connection to other people becomes a strength. Like, I, again, that th- there's that classic, what is it, 33, 39, I can't remember, but that Ditko story that everybody points to where he's stuck under, they, they actually did this in Homecoming, but he's stuck mm-hmm. under the machinery and he can't, he's about to give up and, and I've done all I can. This is just the end of me. And suddenly he thinks, if I don't survive this, Aunt May will die. Right, and right. he finds this deep strength. He can't mm-hmm. give up. And I mean, panel by panel, he slowly lifts this machinery until this triumphant moment. 
but that's that's the other side of that. Yes, he takes on all the guilt, but the sense of obligation to others gives him strength, yep. a strength of character that mm -hmm. is far more powerful than his own self-worth. Like self-preservation is not mm -hmm. his biggest source of strength, which is which is what is so interesting and inverted from most what I would think of as normal people, like the way that we're psychologically mm -hmm. built. Um, and so I, I just, I, that's why I find him so admirable and, and why yeah. he continues to kind of connect to generation after generation after generation of readers. Yeah. And, and that, and that scene where he's just like, you know, it's even telling how he's like, you know, come on, Spider-Man, come on, Spider-Man. Like that's yeah. he like, he psychs himself up because like, you're Spider-Man. You're supposed to like, this is what you're supposed to do. This is your job. Like he goes from scared kid to like, I, I have to do this because that's who I am. And I think you're right. Like that is what makes him so enduring is that. He is all of these things and he can be all of these things to all these different people. And like, regardless of what medium you put him in, whether it's, you know, the game coming out on Friday or a movie or anything like that, those elements for, like go across all these different audiences. Like in the game, like part of what you do is you go around high-fiving people or helping out Aunt May at the homeless shelter or letting somebody use your shoulder as a pillow on the subway. And that's all like perfectly in keeping with Spider-Man in, in all these really small ways. So, um, yeah, I, I think that you're really onto something there. Well, and I mean, another example that, I, that I'd bring in that I um, have always loved. Um, so Marvel's 2006 Civil War event, um, one of the things that, that's important to kind of recognize that, we think of that as, well, it's Iron Man versus Captain America. And Iron Man, you know, kind of represents the neoconservative establishment state. Um, Captain America is more the liberal or libertarian, depending on your <laughs> reading, um, individual liberty crusader. And this is our cultural conflict. But what people, I think, forget about the comic version of that is they're fighting over Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. um, Spider-Man represents the people. Um, he is, er early on, he is persuaded uh, by Tony Stark to side with him, that this kind of appeal to, we get more, things are easier, this is the way it should be. But then his own conscience gets, you know, pricked and he winds up switching sides. And that's kind of what it is. I mean, in the Civil War story, which is fought between Titans, you know, Iron Man represents one, the institution and Captain America represents the institutions, you know, that are fighting. And in the middle is the human which is Spider-Man. He's like the citizen who's kind of caught and he's, he's what's you know caught between them. And that's just, as long as writers get that, that Spider-Man is the proxy for the reader. He's, he's the one that kind of gives us access into the superhero world as it, this kid from Queens who happened to get powers. And now he sees there's this big superhuman community and he wants to be a part of that, but he doesn't know how. Mm -hmm. And that, gives us the opportunity to kind of learn the ropes with him. And I think the writers that, that approach him that way um, really get to that kind of consistent essence of him and, and bring in, and that's why I'm saying generation after generation after generation, because kids see that and they relate to that in ways they don't even relate to some of the other characters. And there's just something really powerful there. Well, th uh, uh, Rick, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Uh, I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, uh, we're going to have to talk about Captain Marvel uh, when, when her movie comes out, because I know you're a big Absolutely. fan, but uh, costume came out today. Real quick thoughts on that. Yeah. So um, I had figured it would look very similar to that, of course, taking on kind of the Marvel ultimate aesthetic, um, mm -hmm. you know, 
some of the detailing was a, was a little bit interesting. Um, I'll be honest, when they first um, announced Brie Larson, my reaction to the actress choice was not um, the most positive, but I keep reminding myself, I thought the same thing about Chris Evans. I could not believe mm. that they chose Chris Evans to be Captain America and they kind of knew what they were doing there. So, um, you know, I'm kind of looking at that. The costume um, itself, um, the uniform, um, looks i mean it looks pretty good pretty consistent it it is a, a kind of ultimate version of what we're seeing in the in the best of of the of the comic books um i really do need to see more though um you know how this is all all going to play out i have high hopes um for this Me film too. not just for what it represents but also just because that particular character you know, has has been maligned um, mm -hmm. in the past, and I and I'm really happy to see that that she could be getting such prominent placement. So I've I've high hopes. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm just also nervous the way I usually am in these moments. <laughs> hey, they, but they got you know they got a uh, they got Ronan back. So that's something. Like so they. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, no, I mean a lot all of, the lot all of lore the... bombs dropped today actually. So it's pretty exciting. Phil, Phil Coulson back in the film. I mean, you know, I mean, just all of those things are are exciting. Yeah. I just hope they pull it off. That's my, it, it, uh, so far their track record suggests they will. <laughs> well, tell you what, come back in March. We'll talk about it. Uh, Absolutely. When the, when the movie drops, I, I want to pick your brain about Captain Marvel too. Uh, but again, uh, uh, Jay Richard Stevens, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, go check out the book, uh, Captain America, uh, Mas uh, Captain America, Masculinity and Violence. Uh, I think it's in paperback, right? Uh, is that yes. coming soon? Uh, paperback, paperback just came out. Okay, great. So you can check that out. And uh, thanks again for being a serious fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks to J. Richard Stevens again. I want to recommend his book, Captain America, Masculinity and Violence on Amazon and anywhere else great books are sold. A quick preview of things to come this season on Serious Fun. Later this month, we'll be talking about Superman, Afrofuturism, and the immigrant experience in comics with UWGB psychology professor Dr. Reagan Gurung in another Countdown to Comic-Con episode. That one's going to be live, free, and open to the public at the central branch of the Brown County Library in downtown Green Bay on Thursday, September 20th at 6 p.m. You can expect to see it on the podcast feed uh, probably the next day. Don't forget to stop by live, by the way, at the Brown County Library Central Branch to see three live episodes of Serious Fun get recorded right in front of your very eyes. That, of course, will happen Saturday, September 29th at the Brown County Library Comic Con at the central branch of the Brown County Library, again, in downtown Green Bay as well. First show is going to be at 10.30 a.m. I'll be talking with John Jackson Miller, the writer of over 100 comics and graphic novels, ranging from Star Wars to The Simpsons. Next, I'll be talking with local artist Carly Eide at 1.30. And then the main event, part two of our epic Phoenix Studios crossover between psychology and stuff in this here show, where Ryan Martin, Chuck Ryback, and myself will be putting supervillains on the couch and analyzing what their whole deal is. That's three shows, free, live. Anybody can come by. We hope to see you there. That's all going to be Saturday, September 29th at Brown County uh, Library Comic Con. 
at the Central Branch in downtown Green Bay. It goes from about 10 to 4, all kinds of cool stuff going on. Uh, check out the Brown County Library website for more. In October, we're going to be talking about the legacy of Mary Shelley and Frankenstein in two special live events, also going to be recorded for the feed. Uh, and later this year in December, we'll have a special overthinking it edition of Serious Fun about the quintessential quantum Christmas movie. It is, and it isn't, Die Hard. Stay tuned for that and so much more on the new season of Serious Fun. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.